This is episode 85 of The New Disruptors. Welcome to the World of Tomorrow with Nicole Deeker. Permanent archives found at newdisrupt.org. The New Disruptors is sponsored in part this week by 99designs. Get a design you love with professional, high-quality results with access to over 310,000 graphic designers. Dozens of designers compete to deliver you the best design. From logos and websites to T-shirts and car wraps, you can get anything designed, and there's a 100% money-back guarantee. Visit 99designs.com disruptors to get a $99 power pack of services for free today. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that tallies the sums and finds the whole is greater than its parts. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of The Magazine. Our show is made possible through the generous support of sponsors and patrons. Thanks this episode to our direct patrons, Ben Wordmuller, Brian Clark, and Tarun Gungwani for supporting us directly through Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash new disruptors. You can back this podcast at Patreon for as little as $1 a month. At higher levels, we'll thank you on the air like this and send you mugs and t-shirts. Just a quick aside about the magazine, the publication that, as previously noted, I edit and publish. We've just come out with version 2.0 of our app. It's a new publishing platform from the folks at Type Engine. And as part of our announcement of this new version, we've opened up our archives for an extended four-week trial. Until August 29th, you can download the app from the iTunes store. Just search on the magazine and you'll find us and access any of our issues from number one to 47 that's way back to october 2012 until early july all our new issues will be available under subscription plans or as single issue purchases but until august 29th you can read anything we've ever published until early july for free give us a try if you're a former subscriber take another look or download issues that you might have downloaded before so you can make sure you have them on hand you can find out more information at the-magazine.com about all the stories that we publish, and getting a copy of the app. Nicole Deeker wears a lot of hats, as well as a brown coat. She is a freelance copywriter and ghostwriter, pens fiction, and writes essays. She's also a musician who bootstrapped herself out of a convention to which she returns every year, a rock climber, a firefly fan, a whiskey drinker, and much more. Nicole also wears her earnings on her sleeve. She discloses in regular posts precisely how much she's making in her freelance career. We will talk about all of that and probably more. Nicole... Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I don't know what the the term is. It's not a polyglot is when you speak a lot of languages. A polymath is when you know a lot of subjects. I think you're like a polycareerist, which I am as well. Was the term not Renaissance man, which we can upgrade to Renaissance person? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, there's also the jack of all trades. The thing that follows is usually master of none, but that's not the case. Is jack of all trades, master of many. Um, I have that master's degree. I'm I'm all set you're there. You're literally a master's of many. That's perfect. But So, you know, there's a lot of different ways to get into, into what you do. And I think I, I want to start at the present briefly because you do this very brave and interesting and useful thing. You decided at some point, which I'd love to know the the origin of that too, to talk publicly about how much money you make in your career. That is crazy and wonderful. How did you come to decide to do that? I started doing it. I started doing it back when I was a musician and when I was performing regularly. I used to, you know, literally travel to a new city every week, like many musicians do, and play shows wherever I went. And I realized that there is this disparity between what I was presenting, which was, you know, successful full-time touring musician, and what was actually going on, which was person who wasn't making all that much money. <laughs> and so I thought, well, I'm going to I'm going to write about this. I'm going to start posting how much money I earn every week because I think that's a really important piece of the conversation. If you just look at someone and you assume they're making a lot of money, you know, then you're going to make decisions about your own creative and financial career that are that's based on inaccurate information. That is a fantastically well put statement, I have to say. That's my concern as a freelance writer. I mean, I have what seem to be like jobs to outside people, but to me is a whole variety and, and I own a publication that I that I, you know, run and manage the business side of myself. But I have lots of different piles that I work with and I worry sometimes that people will 
look at what I do and say, Glenn is successful, which I have a lot of things to say about. And, uh, and so I should emulate what he does. And I'm like, well, maybe what I'm doing is unique or it's a side thing. Do, do you get that? Do you have people who say uh, or who were saying when you were when music was a big part of what you were doing, say, uh, oh, well, I see you everywhere. I go to all these different sites. I go to conventions. Uh, you're omnipresent. Uh, so you must be doing very well. So I'm going to be like you. I certainly had people say, how do I be like you? I'm not sure anyone said directly, you know, I see you, so I assume you're doing well. But I saw other people and I assumed they were doing well too. <laughs> um, but no, certainly you have people who see you at conventions and come up to you afterwards and say, how do I make a career doing what you were doing? And I also, I, I wanted to make it very clear that it was a career, but it you know, some weeks I only made 200 bucks and it cost me 300 bucks to get to the venue. <laughs> this is like the great bit in uh, Blues Brothers where, uh, mm -hmm. you know, where they, they're at the bar, they're at the wrong place, they played the wrong gig, and then they get the uh, bar bill. We thought drinks were free. It's like, no, well, we're going to go out to our car now. We are writing a check. We have to sit in the car to write it and then, you know, and then right. make well. cast. But I think the other is that assumption is that I, I think there's a a better appreciation of the public for, for musicians. I think people have understood because so many musicians have talked about it and because the record labels are so, you know, they uh, rampage and pillage that people may have a better perception that musicians don't really, most of them make much money from what they do, that, that it's partly labor of love and you have to crack some code to turn it into a full-time career. So may, do you think that is a little better public perception now in 2014 than say, you know, 10 years ago that, um, that, you know, that musicians who you see everywhere aren't necessarily making a fortune. I, I think that is, I mean, I, I think that's always been the perception. Otherwise, mm. you know, parents wouldn't tell their children never <laughs> to become rock musicians. That's true. But I think, I mean, certainly if, if you're in a certain part of the internet, as it were, you understand that musicians require a lot of crowdfunding and they are always, you know, they need money because the cost of creating music is also so expensive. That is something I didn't realize when I got into the gig, that the actual, the cost of production in many ways would would, would eat up any money I made, you know? Well, that's, but there's a myth in the, in the current era that there is no cost of production. You have, uh, you know, some simple software and uh, you have maybe some expense in buying or renting instruments and, and you're done. So what, what are the costs of distribution that surprised, or of production distribution that surprised you? You still, if you're going to be performing live, you still need to make CDs. Even though the CD transaction economy now is mostly, it's a purchase based on the fact that they like you or they like your music. They're buying the CD because they know you, they want to do a financial exchange with you. And the CD that you've got on the table is the method by which they do that. And then they either go rip the CD and put it in a box forever, or maybe they just put it in a box forever and listen to you on Spotify. But you still have to have the CDs and CDs are expensive. And you also have to have the shirts and the hoodies because you need other things for people to buy. Because if they just buy the CD and then they see you again, there's no way to do that financial transaction. So you have to have a second thing and a third thing. And all those things cost a lot of money to make. Oh, so you have these tokens and totems, really, as opposed to, um, I mean, they're useful and people are identifying with you. But they're, they're treating them almost as, a, as, a, as almost like an object of exchange as opposed to a thing that has utility. It's really almost like the Kickstarter rewards level oh, writ large. You come up to the merch table and... You know, do I like you $10 worth? Do I like you $50 worth? And, you know, what is the item on your table that corresponds to the reward level that I have in my mind? That is so beautifully put. And I've heard that so many times, but I think you just said the most succinct form of it about, yes. that, about the Kickstarter thing. You know, and, and your friend of mine, Marion Call, uh, when she went to Europe last fall on a Kickstarter-funded tour, uh, she realized when she got there, she did not bring CDs and mm -hmm. she thought she – I don't want to say she thought she graduated from the economy, but she thought that the fans who were bringing her were already like Bandcamp – and they were Bandcamp users and so forth – that like the people that were likely to come would be so uninterested in physical things. And she realized she was wrong and she was burning CDs and labeling them across the entire tour, which was uh, uh, you know d difficult. It took a lot of time. My, my cousin Steffi is in a band called The Hysterics. It's a punk band. They just went to Europe on a you know sofa cruising tour all over the place and played punk venues um, over the, uh, earlier in the summer. And uh, she told me how they were packing 45s. They had 45s pressed and they mm -hmm. filled their luggage up to the legal, the whole all the band members up to the legal or not legal, sorry, the maximum included weight so that they could carry, I don't know, some hundreds of 45s to sell along the way. And I thought, 
holy cow, this is really different than people's outside the music world perception. I mean, at the level you're talking about where you have a fan base and an audience and you're touring or you can perform at venues, but you still have to have physical things. I think I was really unaware of that. Yeah, I I think there are some people who still collect CDs to use as actual CDs, but it's really the transaction that's important. And making that transaction, it feels different than putting out a tip jar, you know, they because you're exchanging something of value. They want a memory of you or they want mm -hmm. a, a thing. Yeah, there's always, I mean, that's the T-shirt economy. I talked to Jonathan Colton a while ago. Yeah. And he and I, he opened my eyes about that. I didn't quite understand. I mean, T-shirts T-shirts to musicians are like cigarettes to prisoners. It's like <laughs> it's like you have if you don't have them and then you have a series of them and they're a hassle. And if you outsource them, you don't make as much money. If you do them yourself, you go crazy. Uh, but you have to do them because that's going to be a source. And so th this is, I think, very eye-opening, I think, to – I'm sure most of the listeners of the show are not musicians, probably in a lot of other kind of creative fields. Um, but understanding that <laughs> that people want that physical connection uh, is interesting. So uh, now, now that we've talked a little bit about the, the front end of this, I'd like to go backwards in time. Take me back in history. So you've been working for a number of years. And have you been freelance across your entire, entire, your entire adult working life? No, no. I've had what people consider, quote, regular jobs. And between so, what did you have a field you started out in, and then diverted into being able to pursue more interests, or or were you just had a job job and always had these things that you wanted to do? Well, really, to sort of understand where I'm coming from work wise, um, so so when I was a teenager, all right, so way back, you know, you have a couple of options in terms of jobs teenagers can get, and in fact, this was in the '90s, so the jobs were different than they are now. But as a teenager, you know, I could work as a dishwasher, which I did for something like three weeks before I quit because it was miserable. And, you know, or I went and I became a freelance church organist. You know, I played for <laughs> I played for two different churches. I accompanied choirs. I also started working as a piano teacher. You know, these were all jobs that I did myself without an employer. Right. I mean, technically, the church was sort of my employer, but I had a lot of freedom there. And I also made more money than I ever did dishwashing, you know, or than I ever did working in food service, which I also did during my teenage years. So very early on, you know, I was I was exposed to this idea that if you worked for yourself, it was both a lot more fun and you had the the, the chance to make a decent amount of money, you know, so that. I mean, both my parents are musicians. They're also teachers. And I ended up getting a music degree in undergrad. And then I ended up getting a Master of Fine Arts in theater, which I don't recommend. <laughs> but, you know, this entire time I was working creatively on freelance projects. I also picked up other jobs because sometimes the freelance projects did not pay as much as I had hoped they would, you know, um, especially when you're just getting started out. But I always had this freelance sort of train going. I started a children's theater for a while. I worked um, at another children's theater for a while. I was also working as a telemarketer. I was working in an insurance office. I was combining all of this. I went to grad school. Grad school was the mouth noise. Um, and I, I, I came out of grad school and I decided I wanted to make money. I wanted to see how much money I could make because I was kind of tired of never having any money. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, you know, I'm going to see how much money I can make. Where can I go to make money? And I went to my grad school advisor and I said, I would like to make $50,000 a year. What can I do to do that? Yeah. You know, and $50,000 doesn't even seem like that much anymore. But this was, again, it was a while ago. And he said, well, with your skills, why don't you try becoming an executive assistant? So that is what I did for mm -hmm. four years. I did that. And I made money and I saved money and I lived, I lived like a student and I saved a bunch of money. And then after four years, I was feeling the creative itch again. I hadn't been doing the stuff that was so interesting to me. And so I... <laughs> I had this music career that I was building up on the side. I thought, you know what happens if I go into this full time because I was making okay money then? You know, I thought I could make my rent every month selling CDs, which I did. 
but then I found out that the cost of the CDs exceeded the cost of the, you know, so I was making rent, but spending it on CDs instead of rent. Um, Anyway, so you're starting to see how this all fits together, I imagine. Yeah, well, it's but I mean, it's not a it's not an atypical story, but it's interesting because you're, uh, you know, you, it seems like you're the things that were driving you were driving you all along, and you're trying to figure out the right mix of how to turn that in a way to pay the bills, and which exactly. is, I mean, which everyone would like to do, and a lot of us don't, you know, some of us achieve it, some of us don't, and then there's that continuous um, balance that's hard to strike. It's like, well, I'm doing this one lucrative thing that I, you know, it's, there's that dial of like, I'm doing something, if you're lucky, I'm doing something lucrative that I either can stand or really hate. I know some people who do something lucrative, may have a day job that they actually really enjoy, but it doesn't fulfill them. It's not terrible. They go in there, they enjoy being there, but it is really not how they want to spend their lives. However, the pay is so good they can never leave, like because leaving mm-hmm. means they have to actually completely reinvent what they do, and there's no motivation to do it. So at some level, it's better to be doing something that you mildly dislike but pays the bills because you eventually will have to leave it because you won't be a happy human being. Yeah. No, absolutely. And so that sounds like part of your path, right, is that you were in the, you, you did something, saving money, working along, trying to do the music thing. But so w- there must have been some flashover point for you because, uh, I mean, I want to fast forward too f- quickly through it. But I know um, we just recently talked to uh, – just recently talked to uh, Oni and Harknell, the folks behind the intervention uh, con in, that happens uh, in your neck of the woods out near D.C. And um, uh, they cited you as an, like an incredible example of someone who, who took advantage of – Finding a community that they were trying to foster and and running with it was intervention a turning point. It's, it's funny. It was, was the intervention a turning point, Nicole? Tell me, it sounds so. The internet convention intervention was that a turning point for you in 2010 when that came along? Or you already found a, a course and, and it um, this gave you a focus? I'm just curious how it fit into your uh, into your development. Sure, intervention for me is it was less of a turning point than it was like a yearly check in. So during my very first intervention, which was also their very first intervention, you know, we both sort of showed up at this hotel and it was the first convention I had ever played in front of humans. And it was the first convention they had ever done in front of humans. And so there was this this great sense of none of us have any idea, you know, is this going to work? And I played a show and I think there might have been 20 people in the audience, maybe a few more. You know, and then I felt very invigorated because I had played a nerd convention for 20 people and they liked me and clapped. And that was amazing. And I want to do it again, which I think is also what Oni and Harknell said about intervention. They Mm -hmm. said this convention is amazing and I want to do it again. And so every year I came back and every year I was making more money and my audiences were bigger and more people recognized me and more people came to talk to me. And it was a lot of fun. And I think so. So every year when I go back to intervention, you know, I, I get to see the same people I saw last year because it has a huge, like, repeat rate for for guests and panelists and performers. And I get to ask them, what are you doing? They ask me, what am I doing? We share notes, you know. It's and, and I it, it, it's like a marker. It's like the line on the wall where you draw your kid's height and every year I'm a little <laughs> bit taller. That's the perfect. It's, I mean, that's the ideal direction too, right? It mm-hmm. uh, doesn't always work that way. And when it does, it's fantastic um, <laughs> that you can be – <laughs> you know that you're you're getting there, but you know there's actually a story um, that uh, Oni and Harknell didn't tell. We were going back and forth through email about something, and you and you told me something hilarious about intervention that first year. The, yeah. The fir- can you tell the story of the first night? Because there's a happy ending to this, but you were you were telling me about the first night uh, at the show. Yeah. Well, intervention. I believe, if I remember correctly, it ran Friday, Saturday, and Sunday in 2010, and Friday night there was nobody there you know, and we didn't know if anyone was going to come. And by nobody, I probably mean around 50 people, which is not in nowhere. It's not nobody, but the halls were pretty empty. And so I was walking around with one of intervention staff and we're like, what are we going to do? And there was this room where they were showing a movie, you know, because you always have the movie room where people can go and sort of like introvert out. So the movie room had no one in it and they were showing some It was one of like the Harry Potter spoof movies. And I said, well, here's a projector. Here's a computer that's hooked up to the internet. (laughs) Let's switch this to YouTube and we're going to start doing some lyrics videos and let's turn it into a karaoke room. And the other staff member was all, okay, whatever, let's do it. So while he was doing the technical part and setting up the karaoke space, 
I went from room to room. I found anyone I could. I found the two people who were sitting in a panel that nothing was happening in. You know, I was like, come to the karaoke room. We're going to have karaoke night. We're going to do this. And that was a lot of fun. It was like, it was, it was, it was, you know, we started, it started feeling like a sense of togetherness instead of a sense of 50 disparate people who were all at this con. And then the next day, everyone else showed up and we had 500 people. <laughs> and that was, you know, it was lovely. We didn't fail. That's right. Well, th that was the thing. When you sent an email, you said there were only a handful of people. I'm like, wait a minute. But they had wind. It's like, oh, yeah. But that must have been panic-inducing. I know it wasn't even your event. You were there to participate in it. But you're like, oh, my God, what did I get myself into? And then um, you're singing, que sera, sera. <laughs> it's like that wonderful. People wandering out and, and uh, it all join in hands on the beautiful hillside. The sun pouring down upon you. But th I think the community is such a critical aspect to uh, so many of the people I talk to who are trying to create these independent careers. As We talk about it being independent, but of course they're completely dependent on being able to find an audience. And the audience, I would love if you would talk about that a bit, about um, it seems to me that the, the difference between, say, a mass market success, regardless of what people are actually earning, but sort of a mass market approach, the old approach was sort of talking at, performing at, and fans were a necessary component, but they were, for a lot of artists, I think a, a bit of a faceless thing because there were so many. You couldn't actually have individual relationships. And the new world order is you could actually potentially, depending on what you do, make part of or a complete or a very good living, and you might have a really close relationship to fans. So the audience isn't this faceless mass. It's actually people you know. It, it, can you talk a bit about how you cultivate and find an, an audience and community for what you do? Sure. It's a tricky question because the way, for example, you know, the way Jonathan Colton created his audience and the way Marion Call created her audience and the way I created my audience and the way that people now will be creating their audiences, they're all different. And that's where it gets really hard. Um, because for a while, you know, when, when Jonathan Colton was putting up a song a week and writing about it, and he wrote that, um, he wrote that blog post about how the, the concentric circles of touring model, you know, was now obsolete because you could meet a bunch of people all at once and you didn't have to build the circles. It was, it was something that was easier to do in, and I'm going to blank on when he actually did this, I think it was 2005, that would be worth fact checking. But it was something that was easier to do in the the 10 years ago internet before Twitter, before Facebook, before social media, before you had 400 followers and were following a thousand people, you know? Because once once the signal versus noise ratio got too high, it went back to that concentric circles model again. Mm. In a different way... Um, necessarily then you know you have to tour in small city small city larger city larger city larger city although that's still part of it but instead of getting a thousand fans at once simply because you were the only person out there and that sounds pejorative that's not what i mean but there were there were fewer people so you know a good person now has it harder than a good person 10 years ago because there are so many good people trying to do the same thing. Well, somebody put the flag in the in the sand and they were on top of the hill. And it doesn't mean they were less deserving of it, but there was nobody else climbing up the hill trying to plant a flag. Right. And like YouTube, for example, used to put people on its front page that they would just sort of pluck out of random because they thought their videos were interesting. And they don't do that anymore. You can have a great video and YouTube is not going to promote it for you. You are going to have to send it to everyone you know on Facebook. They're going to have to send it to everyone they know. And it's back to that circle model. You send it to the small circle of people you know. You hope they spread it to the larger circle of people, etc. But that didn't really answer your question because you asked about making connections with fans. No, but that was a great question to answer yes. too, though. That was also a great thing to talk about. <laughs> I mean, the thing that hasn't changed is that those relationships are still essential. You know, now... Relationships are so much the currency of, you know, creative connection, whether you're starting a Patreon or whether you're playing a concert or whether you want people to read articles you write on the Internet. They might read them because the articles are good, but they also read it because they are following your story, because they are invested in your success and because you are interesting to them. 
Let's take a break so I can tell you about Harry's, who is one of this week's sponsors. Now, Harry's fits really neatly into my model of disruption because there's so much in the world that's designed to eke out money from the middle points of things. You have people who make stuff and then there's all these steps off in between that and the actual buyer, consumer, or audience. Uh, what Harry's has done, it's removed some of those pain points, and you'll be familiar with this model. They sell razors, and you'd think, look, after this much time, there can't be that much disruption left in the replaceable razor blade business, right? Because it's a well-established thing. The market's old. Everything that's been done has been done. Well, that's not the case because of all the middle pieces that Harry's pulls out. They're less than a year old, and they're really changing how this whole industry works. They just purchased the 93-year-old German factory that makes the blades that they sell to you. They're bypassing all the intermediate steps that add all the expense. And this might sound familiar because one of the co-founders, Jeff, also co-founded Warby Parker. And uh, that eyeglass company, as you know, disrupted how people get glasses. You can see this in mattress delivery and other businesses as well. Harry's is one of those categories. $15 gets you a set that includes a handle, three blades, and shaving cream delivered right to your door. These are extremely well-made blades that are available for a fraction of the competition. They're about half the price of other razor blades. They're delivered to you. You don't have to go to a store and wait and have someone unlock it and treat you like a criminal who can steal all the razor blades and whatever other valuables they have in that special lot case. These blades are engineered in their own factory. They've bought the means of production. They are the creators of this thing, and it goes right to you directly. Is it disruptive? Yes. Is it new? Well, it's taking advantage of the mechanism of the internet to deliver an old product, something that goes back decades and decades in a new way. You get the savings. They can make a business out of creating a superior product and delivering it to you. That's how disruption works. So here's the code I promised. Go to harrys.com. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Harrys.com. Use the promo code DISRUPT. Disrupt to save $5 off your first purchase. So $15 gets you a set with a handle, three blades, and shaving cream. Get $5 off by using the coupon code DISRUPT. And now back to the podcast. And there's, uh, I mean, the thousand true fans thing, I think we, I cite this every other episode, or one of my guests does, is, is you know, the Kevin Kelly's essay doesn't exactly posit that you only need a thousand people who are, you know, passionate, but it says that the economics probably lean towards having a having a, a certain number of people there's some minimum and it's different for each person it's different for each kind of artistic career and what you do but that if you hit a certain minimum you may be able to make uh, a reliable amount of money and for some people that could be a full-time living um based on people who are who are passionately interested in what you do here's the thing that i think may have changed especially in the last few years is that it feels like the audience is now so much composed of people who are also creators like not that in the past everyone was passive there was, there was a you know i do buy into the fact that there was a golden age before mass media in which people all were creative by necessity because you had to entertain each other and you know mm -hmm. the, the little house stories like everyone could, could was sang or played an instrument or did something whittled whatever yes. you had to do something because you had long winters and and not much light and you're all bored so you did things and um and not, not to get too into that concept, but there was a point in which people were much more creative. And I, I kind of maintain that much of the 20th century was about people losing and then rediscovering at the end of it that – and that the internet has brought back uh, this form of uh, an expectation that everyone can do something. It doesn't all have to be expert. It can be amateur and that's cool and we can enjoy it for its own right. So where we're at now is I feel like people who are our audiences um, – it can be patronizing if you look at them only as fans. I mean, it is patronizing if you look at them. If you don't look at them as individuals, it is patronizing too. But that many of the people who are interested in people who are pursuing independent careers, and whether it's at the scale of like a, a Jonathan Colton or Amanda Palmer for that interest, you know, who's sort mm -hmm. of a, on a bigger stage, but but uh, or parallel one, um, or you or I, that those people are also many of them passionate creators of something, and it may be just a very little part of what they do, and they may have a full time job, or they may not have themselves have invested in it, but that our audiences are as able to stand up on a stage as, as we are. Have you found that in the kinds of, you know, conventions the, you went on the uh, Jonathan Cruz and the Joko Cruz crazy. I keep hearing sort of famously that that event particularly has an incredible community at sea now uh, that a lot of people come back again and again. Are you finding that trend that your audience is as creative as, as you are, I guess is what I want to say that there is that, that you stand more in a pure relationship to them. They're not putting you on a pedestal. 
think so, absolutely. I mean, there are always the people who are going to put you on a pedestal, but that's just who they are. It's much more of a larger creative community. And what was it? Was it in Polygon yesterday where someone wrote an op-ed about how Patreon is just a gigantic Ouroboros of money transactions? Yeah, well, yeah, this is a joke. When I was in college, I, I was at Yale and Yale is famous for its singing groups. And mm-hmm. there were so many singing groups. The joke was, and I don't think it was false that essentially the audience for every performance was just the members of every other singing group. And it feels like that. And Jonathan Colton was, you know, was a whiff and poof. So he knows about that. Uh, but that, that feels like that sometimes that sometimes, wait, is my audience on Kickstarter entirely made up of other Kickstarter? Okay. It might be, maybe. I mean, and there's nothing wrong with that. No, not it's, at all. You wouldn't, you wouldn't go to a restaurant and say, you know, is, are my server and I both people who eat food? <laughs> <laughs> I can't be served by someone who eats food. That would be the wrong, strange things. Yeah, I I think the drive to create has always been there. And certainly, you know, and I like to say on this part of the internet, because there are different parts of the internet, but in this particular community, you are likely to attract people who are interested in creating things too. And that is part of the conversation. It's a great conversation. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then it's also this is where it spurs other people. It goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, too, is that people may have outsized ideas of what it's like to try to make a living in whatever area that you're working in. This may actually be the, the good segue into the so you were working very hard on music for a while. It was a big part of what you did. And now you're primarily uh, a freelance. Now, I know you just came out. You you released an album of, of earlier work uh, just last month in June, right? Yes, I so, did. That so was that was the, the last, last piece yes. on my Kickstarter. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Right. Marion Call, like I said, you're a friend of mine. Marion Call has just released one of her cover albums, which is from her a Kickstarter mm-hmm. from a while ago, too. It was, uh, again, a surprisingly difficult thing to do. We, we should t- we'll talk about Mint Card cover your cover album fundraiser as well yeah that'd be great in a bit too but um but so you've made a transition where you've um uh and, and you asked me to ask you this before the podcast i'll bring this as that you follow the money that you actually would like yes. to make a good amount of money that you'd like to be able to you know this is the the goal in life would be uh my, my goal in life my wife and i have this crazy goal in life with our kids that we'd actually like to retire someday mm-hmm. and um not be working till we die so <laughs> so it's a perfectly like we're not well we're not wealthy we do okay you know i have a lot of friends the same boat it's like we would like to not work until we die we'd like to know there's a plan at some point we could take vacations along the way and you know at 65 70 whatever age we decide that we stop working so um it's funny i don't know why i feel embarrassed to to like have to disclose and say like yeah i'd actually like to make enough money that i'm not always starving like that would be great you know i don't know why i feel embarrassed about that there's i mean because then you're mercenary and then you're not doing it for the pure joy of creation woo but that's not that's also why I put my income on the internet, because the pure joy of creation, first of all, does not build you a career, and second of all, does not support you as a person, you know? We have people fighting for living wages, which is a different fight than creative people are having, but it's nice to earn money, you know? Yeah, in our economy, it's the, um, there's, there's a fame of the Ruttles, the Beatles parody that, uh, that involved uh, Eric Idle and some non-Monty Python people. There was a bit in it where uh, they did this press conference, fake press conference. Someone said, have you sold – it's like, have you sold out? I'll find the quote and put it in the show notes. It's like, no, no, we haven't sold out. Um, we're, we're not in it just for the money. We're in it for the things that money buys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, yes. I, was, it was, I know it was a joke, but I'm like, no, that's exactly it. It's like I don't actually uh, – a lot of people I know, we're not actually looking to accumulate money. We're not in the, sort of that power dynamic. It's like, no, I actually like to be able just to pay the bills, have a little left over so I know what the future is going to bring. Um, so you, so your career shift, so um, you shifted from this primary focus on, on music into primary focus on writing. And clearly from you said earlier too that you've always been writing. It's not a new thing. Um but that's a that's a tricky thing to do, especially right now. Like there's a lot – I feel like as a freelancer, there's a lot more money in the system, but it's divided in such a weird um, piles. And a lot of people are being hired in the tech world. There's so many tech publications that got startup money or actually selling enough advertising that are growing. Like Quartz just doubled its staff. Uh, Daily Dot just hired. Recode started up with funding. Like So in the tech writing tech news community, there's all this money. But in other segments, there's not. You know, advertising is crappy or it's declining and, and whatever. So this is an interesting time 
for you to put a stake in the sand again and say, well, I'm going to go this way. And judging by the numbers you're posting, you've made a very nice transition, I would have to say, based on my knowledge of what you know freelance income brings. How did you chart this trans- transition? Was it really gradual? Was it an abrupt thing? You said, okay, next month I start. I mean, I- I'd love to know the tr- that, that, uh, what took you in that path. Sure. I started on that path because I was not making enough money as a musician to support myself. And I was getting very close to maxing out my credit cards. I had spent all the money I earned, all the money I had saved as an executive assistant. And much of that money actually went towards the Kickstarter, which is a whole nother story. Let's just say my Kickstarter costs a lot more to produce than I thought it would. I, <laughs> I think I, that's the story of many you're, Kickstarters. Will, you're part of the club. You're mm-hmm. part of the club, Nicole, as there are, there are tens of thousands of members. <laughs> So, so here I was, I was making, you know, I was making money, but I was not making enough to survive and I needed a job fast. And I went, um, I went to Reddit, (laughs) I went online to Reddit and I was like, dear Reddit, how do I make money? Thanks. And so Reddit directed me to Amazon Mechanical Turk. Yeah. And from there I got onto Crowdsource, which is a content, it's a content, um, farm. It's a content writing site. And I started working for Crowdsource and I started writing a lot of pieces for Crowdsource. And I became, at one point, I was their fourth highest earner of all time. And so that was going on. While I was doing that and while I was also playing music and doing shows, I started pitching online magazines, right? So I was pitching like The Toast and I was pitching... I figured who else I was pitching at the time. I don't think I'd started pitching the Billfold yet. But I was pitching and people were responding positively to what I was writing. Mm-hmm. And people were giving me money for it. And two things happened which were very important. I think both of these are equally important. First is that I was making money as a freelance writer. I was often making more money as a freelance writer than I was at as a musician even though at that time I was spending more time doing music than I was doing writing. Oh, yeah. That's, yes, I understand that. And the second thing that happened, which I wrote about on my Tumblr in depth, you can dig into the archives, people were asking me to write for them. And this is a huge difference in that people were okay if I wanted to play for them with a few exceptions, like, you know, Oni and intervention and I are always, I'm making the cross fingers. Things were tight, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to support each other. <laughs> but like I would contact other conventions and they would be happy to give me some second stage slot that no one else wanted, you know, but they weren't offering me main stage slots. And in the freelance writing world, I was getting those main stage offers. People were interested in having me write for them in a way that they were never really all that interested in having me play music for them, which was fine. Because admittedly, I'm good, but not great as a musician. I'm solid, but there are a lot of better people out there, you know? This is why I left a, a career in graphic design to become mm-hmm. a journalist. Is exactly. I, just, I have a degree. This will probably sound familiar. I have a degree in graphic design. I thought I was going to go to work in the field. I wound up getting diverted into computers and education at this Kodak teaching facility and then, well, now I'm going to be a graphic designer. I'm like, well, but the writing, well, maybe. And then it's like, oh, people ask me to write, and I really am gotten pretty good at it. And the mm-hmm. design, I'm okay. I'm fine. I'm competent. But the thing I thought I was going to do, I'm not going to. A lot of people don't. It's an interesting self-realization you had, the, the ability that you accepted that, that even with whatever part of your identity was tied up with being a musician, that you were willing to accept that you could have a different identity that you were going to be proud of, even if it wasn't what your preconception was. That's a powerful thing. I thought it was, I mean, I actually thought it was lovely because it's the sort of thing that you always hope will happen to you. You know, you hope that someone will hire you to be you, you know, they won't hire you just as like musician to fill a slot or they won't hire you just as, you know, human to fill a job position. They want Nicole. They don't want the position. They want actually me, you know? Mm-hmm. And that is that is like the best outcome ever for a career. That I was thrilled. Let's pause for a moment so I can tell you about 99designs, one of this week's sponsors. And if you listen to the end, I've got an offer from 99designs to you. 
If you've listened to this podcast for any period of time, you may know that I was trained as a typesetter, and I've also worked as a graphic designer. It's a really interesting and fabulous field, but one of the problems with it, actually, is being able to find enough work and of the type you need and get paid reliably. That's sort of one side of the equation. As a client, someone who needs graphic design, it's often difficult to get the time you need and the consistency and quality without having an ongoing and expensive relationship with a firm. Now, that's great if you're doing a ton of work that needs to be designed all the time. Not 99designs provides a solution. It's kind of a conduit between you as a client who needs something specific, like a logo or a car wrap, a t-shirt, website design, all kinds of things. You use them to reach over 310,000 graphic designers registered in their system. They provide a 100% money-back guarantee so that your satisfaction is guaranteed up front. You don't have to worry about haggle over a bill or decide what happens. Multiple designers come up with designs that you evaluate and provide feedback for, and then you pick the one you want and you pay. Logo designs start at just $299, and there's all kinds of categories of things you can ask for. The idea here is that 99designs is tapping into this enormous base of designers around the world who are participating in this, making sure they get compensated fairly and making sure you get the work you want. I think everybody wins in this transaction because people who wouldn't formerly go and, and get a logo designed or get what they need designed for themselves, now they have a way to do it. So I mentioned there's a special offer. You can give 99designs a try today by going to 99designs.com slash disruptors. That's numeral nine, numeral nine, designs.com slash disruptors, and you'll get a $99 power pack of services at no cost. Visit 99designs.com slash disruptors, get that $99 power pack, and give it a try. See how you can improve your business identity by tapping into a worldwide network of designers through 99designs. And now, back to the podcast. Well, could you say, maybe at a larger level, uh, you have a gift of storytelling, and you're expressing it through different media so that you're not giving up the, you know, the quintessence of who you are that people discovered a different or you discovered a slightly different aspect of yourself and that got recognized. I mean, I'm telling a story of your own life to you, I realize, but I, no, as, that's, as the super observer says, huh, so you tell stories. That's always what I've said. I, I actually thought for a while that I would go into storytelling, the classic sort of folk discipline. Um, but yeah, no, I've always thought of myself as a storyteller first and foremost. I was I was beaten on jeopardy by a storyteller, a children's storyteller, I should point out. It's a mo noble profession. She, it really is. She did very well. Uh, <laughs> it's always a great thing. But storytelling, I mean, that's – I think – you know, I don't think I've ever pulled this theme out, but I think that may be one of the themes of this run of podcasts is like we're now almost two years into it. And I keep trying to find people who have a story to tell that other people can relate to that is both your story because people want to hear about you. I want to hear about you and talk to you as a person. But then there's the broader thing of like how do people relate to your story? And I, I didn't think I realized till this moment that so much, so much of it is – um, even for people who are product designers who are making a thing, that there's a narrative behind it. Like you can make – I had this great interview with a fella who uh, designed stuff. He made the um, onion glasses, you know, the thing that protects mm -hmm. you from crying that is very happy. He was featured without paying for it in Modern Family and uh, the Power Squid. And he has these great things. But all of his products have stories and he has a story. He has a narrative. And so even though he's making gizmos and gadgets, all of which are cool and whatever, I was like, that's that thing is that – um. The narrative underlies what we're doing, and you could be completely soulless, and you'd be told and successful, and it would be totally uninteresting, right? But because you have a story that sustains you, that's part of what compels people to to come to you. Whether it is through music, and maybe that wasn't the financial success, but there was a compulsion there, and you built an audience, and you're finding the editorial side that editors are coming to you because your stories are so compelling. That is the way in which you approach the world. I've always thought that I was a much better storyteller than I was a guitarist. And in fact, I think much of my music success came from my ability to connect with audiences in that kind of storytelling way. So yeah, no, I think it's it's absolutely 100% why this transition worked for me. You know, your mileage may vary to the rest of you listeners out there. Well, it's weird though, because the find the bliss thing is often portrayed as you find a thing as opposed to a... Uh, a concept. So you have a concept that's worked and now your thing is writing. You're, if you'd been obsessed about being a musician and making a career with it, you might be very disappointed, but you're not. And that's, I think that's a great lesson to learn is to be able to take that away. This is sort of like the growing up picturing your ideal wedding and the mm -hmm. actual wedding is something different or you get divorced and you have a different wedding and it's smaller. It's like, okay, well, is your life ruined because you didn't have the wedding that you pictured your whole life? I hope not because it's about what happens 
after the wedding. It's like uh, mm-hmm. when my wife and I had kids, we went to birthing classes. We should have gone to more baby classes. Right. <laughs> didn't take – after the baby was born, we're like, oh, my God, we did this the wrong way around. You only give birth, you know, a handful <laughs> of times and then there's the baby. What do we do with this guy? But uh, that's what it feels like sometimes in planning one's career. You know, pick your major. Pick your career. Pick the thing you specialize in. But like, no, nah, I don't know. Um, before I get us too much into the philosophical, I would like to talk more practical thing because you've learned a lot of lessons and, uh, the Firefly community, I don't know if you want to talk about that a, a bit because the album you just, uh, the one you just released is your Firefly album, right? That was from the Kickstarter. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. And it's been fascinating to me how like the brown coats that that's been, I've talked to actually, there's a lot of different people I've talked to over the last couple of years who have some Firefly connection. I knew there was a community, but it seems to be a fairly in- intense one. Did they help drive your, your Kickstarter success or have you always been, uh, since the show aired, um, just that's a thing you're interested in and you wanted to do something that would appeal to that community? Um, like a lot of people, I came to Firefly long after it had been after it had been canceled. Mm. And I binge watched it and then I watched it again and I was like, this is amazing and wonderful. And then you find this community of people and the the overlap between you know, convention fans and Jonathan Colton fans and, you know, Maker Fair fans and Firefly fans is pretty it's pretty big so you know wherever you go you are you are often running into people who are fans of firefly for whatever reason and just like any other i don't want to say networking but you know exactly what i mean and the answer is networking you know people who are part of brown coat communities help you get work just because they know interesting people who are doing interesting things. And then they know you who is also interesting and who is doing interesting things. And so the Brown community helped me get jobs. You know, certainly they helped me, um, the Kickstarter go because they supported it and tweeted about it. And I had written these songs about Firefly characters because those always get a very good response, you know, because there are so many people who are interested in the Firefly story. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I, I added that to my Kickstarter as a stretch goal. And then finally, two years later, I released it. <laughs> that's, but, like, that's the fan thing, though, is usually yes. people are okay with the... the I backed a... Uh, maybe he's listening to this show. I backed somebody back in 2009, 10 on Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. It was an author. And I think I gave him 25 bucks for a book he was going to write. And then what happened is his life got really complicated and he hasn't written right. it yet. It's, he has not forgotten about it. We get occasional updates. I know I'm on Twitter and whatever. I'm totally delighted with that money. I have I have no care. That was back when it felt more like a pure, um, I'm supporting you as a person because I like the work. And it was also early. I was like, I don't even know what this thing's about. I'll give 25 bucks to set up an account at Kickstarter and understand what it is. I've never regretted giving that money. And someday he will, you know, he's written other books. He got successful and his life got very complicated and he makes no excuses. And he sort of, you know, it's on his plate. But I'm like, great, whatever. As opposed to like, I need my iPhone dock now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, so I wanted to get into a couple areas here that are, that are, I think more, more difficult. Let's talk about, let's talk about some difficult things, but I think interesting too, because this may be part of what drove you into uh, the transition as well is that, um, so you talked about the Kickstarter and uh, I've talked on this show a lot about the the book Kickstarter I did back in January, last year, November, December. And I think I made $5 an hour wages from it, but I learned a bazillion things. And I think my future career path will change based on having put in seven zillion hours onto the project. But in that, I hear that from a lot of people, no matter how well you plan, even when the huge successes wind up, the, the costs can outstrip profits even when you bring in a hundred times what you expected because you have to shift everything. Everything changes in scale. So you had a Kickstarter, 2012. It went mm-hmm. well. Um, you raised more than you asked for and mm-hmm. you just finished the fulfillment. Uh, where did you hit the snags in it? Are there, are there you know, lessons that you would you would give other people? Are you glad you did it? Are you unhappy you did it? I, I am glad I did it. Um. I think, and I'm going to be very specific here, that I fulfilled um, the the actual main project of the Kickstarter within the time limit I specified. So that that I don't feel guilty about. Oh, I see. Okay. Right. So the actual thing I promised people that I would make, I made on schedule. And then I had these two stretch goals. And I was like, why? Why did I say I would do these two stretch goals? Because by then all the money had been spent, you know, it it was long gone. And I had these two (laughs) things that I eventually did. (laughs) 
I mean, there's the other thing that happens with Kickstarters is that you grow and change, you know? Mm -hmm. especially if you are a single creative person, if you're not a company, right? If you're not a company trying to kickstart a pebble watch, but if you're a single person who says, I want to stretch myself by doing this creative project, often by the time you are done with the project, you have stretched yourself so much that you do not resemble the person you were when you started the Kickstarter, wow. right? Yes, yeah. But then you still have these dang stretched goals to do, you know? Or maybe you promised someone you'd draw on a poster and then you'd like draw on a hundred posters, you know? Yeah, there's the famous, I think it was Amanda Palmer promised to hand paint 150 LP players or something yeah. as part of her thing. And you find that, you know, Andy Bayo uh, who's behind the XOXO conference and was the first uh, CTO of Kickstarter and is, he's, Andy Bayo is the, the guy who makes the internet interesting. Oh, I, I follow him on Twitter. Yeah, he's every time I find an interesting project, he has his fingers in it because he just does interesting stuff. And and he hates stretch goals. And the reason is he feels like that's exactly what you said. And I encounter that myself, too, is I set a stretch goal and it wound up consuming all the extra money and much more time, like probably multiples of the time it took to do the same chunk for the same amount of money, the main thing. And um, I actually I used to advise people to do stretch goals. And now I'm like, no, just at it and do it and because any additional money you have will be consumed so it doesn't <laughs> it well doesn't in, 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 in 2012 in terms of the marketing for kickstarters the stretch goal was something you surprised people with yeah, right it yeah. was a way to send out another email about the kickstarter it was a way to boost enthusiasm so you would plan these stretch goals halfway through your project based on someone who tweeted at you and said hey can you do this as a stretch goal and you're like well will this get me you know 500 more dollars of course i'll do it without thinking about how much it would cost i'm seeing kickstarter people now planning their stretch goals from the very beginning which i like a lot better i, I it means that they're budget line items instead of something you just say you'll do halfway through the piece well, the interesting thing too is I've I've talked to one of the companies that does post support and um, the double clicks. Another, mm -hmm. you know, so the, the community it's not all female songwriters uh, and and performers, but there's an incredibly wonderful community of female songwriters and performers in sort of the geek community, like Marion Call and uh, uh, Angela and Aubrey Weber of the Double Clicks, and you and um, uh, Molly Lewis. Molly Cosby Lewis, sweater. right? Yeah, she's one of the few people I have. I haven't interviewed yet. She's going to be on the list. I have. I've interviewed everybody in Portland except her now. I think. Oh, uh, she's she's actually oh, in, she's Seattle. in Seattle. That's well. Mm -hmm. That's why I've interviewed her because she's not in Portland. Uh, <laughs> Portland is the home of the news disruptors, even though I live in Seattle. Uh, but they used a backer kit. I interviewed the uh, the fellow, one of the fellows behind uh, people behind that project. So some of the post fulfillment support has improved, so it's easier to actually estimate costs better but um but this there's another project you did so, so that's good kickstarter advice but the other project i, I want to talk a little bit about mint car cover because uh it taps in this wonderful thing which is uh try to do this for the 10th anniversary of september 11th it was <laughs> i mean you can describe the details but this is a this is a fundraiser and you brought a lot some of the people we just discussed in fact and others into this project um what was the what was the goal of mint car cover i um i mean mint car cover was something I thought about doing myself, actually. I thought, at that time, Mink Car was the only They Might Be Giants album that was out of print. It is now back in print. But I, it was one of my favorite They Might Be Giants albums. And I, I knew everyone was going to be talking about the 10th anniversary of September 11th. I knew that, you know, I wanted to do something. I wanted to do something that was positive. You know, I wanted to do something that might have a fundraising component. And I thought about doing it all myself. And then I thought, no, it would be much more interesting if a bunch of people did it, you know. And it would also, to be honest, it would probably sell more because then you'd have everyone's fans instead of just my fans. And, you know, so then you start building the project and talking to people. And, and a lot of other people thought it was a great idea, too, which is fantastic. So we made this album. And then... You know, we 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 sold it, and I've made donations to the FDNY Foundation, which is the non-for-profit foundation that works with the Fire Department of New York, and it still sells. You know, there are every once in a while, about twice a year, I'll make another donation over to the FDNY Foundation because the album is still selling. The album also cost a lot of money to make, much more than I expected. Well, that's what I want to say. This is another example of your... Um, there, there's an incredibly wonderful thing about you being so frank and open about stuff that people typically don't talk about, usually around money um, and making a living and all that, because it's very, puts you in a very vulnerable position too. And you're willing to accept that, which I think is great. And um, 
that you pointed out that you didn't really uh, – it wasn't profit from the album you donated. It was actually the income from it. It was the revenue. It, I, um, I stated from the beginning – I mean, I used the word proceeds, which is kind of um, – it's not quite a waffle word, but it right. didn't specify whether it was going to be net or gross. And it turned out to be gross with one exception – so at the beginning, the very first donation we made was completely gross. And in fact, it was more than gross, because what I didn't realize is that all those Bandcamp numbers were going to run through PayPal, oh. and PayPal was going to take a cut. Yeah. So while I was busy, this was like one of my very early experiences with Bandcamp, which I love, by the way, Bandcamp rules. But I didn't realize, as I was busy tweeting, you know, Mink Car Cover has just sold $4,000 worth of albums. This sold $4,500 worth of albums. This sold, you know, and I was charting this up. I was not realizing that Bandcamp was going to take its cut and then PayPal was going to take its cut. Mm -hmm. And the actual number that I got at the end was going to be smaller than the numbers I had been advertising. So, um, so the very first donation we made, and I've, it feels really weird to admit this, um, it was not only, I mean, it was, it was the proceeds and it was me adding more from my bank account to make the number that I had stated we made. Yeah. So it was like gross plus. It feels, I, I'm really, I don't know. I'm really nervous to talk about Mink Car Cover in this way because it, it makes me feel like someone's going to jump out from the shadows and say, you did charity wrong. You know? Well, but no charity, but you can never do it wrong. I mean, well, you, sure you, you can. Well, I mean, there you, are rules about charity. Oh yeah, but you gave, but you gave the money. Well, uh, absolutely, but you gave. I want to say the motivation is never wrong, and maybe you had a financial glitch, but you made it. You made it up. I mean, you made it up. You did the thing that you that you had told people you were going to do, even though it cost you personally. Well, no, that's not what I mean, though. I mean, like one thing i've certainly learned as a musician for example is that there are a lot of regulations and rules mm -hmm. that you don't know about until you get started because nobody says them uh. you know it took me a, quite a while for someone to tell me for example you need to write the words sales tax included on your merch table mm -hmm. because that is something you are legally required to do they never send you when when you take up your guitar they never send you like a legal kit in the mail like this is how to be a yes. musician in a legal way <laughs> yeah. so so i'm you know there's always this fear that you're going to have done something incorrect and not realize it at all i think we did mink car cover correctly and i'm really happy it happened my accountant has told me i know you just hired a cpa based on a, a blog post that i will link to which is a good mm -hmm. move uh my accountant told me uh former accountant former only because of the passage of time not because of any wrongdoing or anything i realized my former accountant no, I had to fire, uh there was this issue about 1099 income a very exciting topic for this podcast i know income that comes your miscellaneous income that's reported to you as a freelancer in america uh that he said more or less like if you report more more income than all your 1099s add up to the irs doesn't care and which is true. It's like so if all your records are right, you have bank deposits and whatever, and you pay too much, um, you don't usually get dinged for it. In fact, you may wind up getting a refund, you know, if you mm. – maybe your your errors. But um, and the same thing is true is like when you try to cross all the T's and dot all the I's, if you're acting in goodwill, uh, it comes out. But I think that is that – there is that thing. Um, there was a dance performance space in um, – or a social dance space in Seattle that got hit with this weird dance tax a bunch of outfits did because uh, the state hadn't enforced it for years and years. And then suddenly they said, oh, we, you all should have been charging X per person because even though this wasn't dance performance, we're going to treat it like it was. Even though there's people going to pay to dance in a space for themselves. They were dancers, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, one of them, I think it was $75,000 bill at this one space. And they managed to do the fundraising. Unbelievably, such a beloved thing. They raised all the money. The state did some negotiation, uh, removed penalties, and paid it off. But you're like, okay, so they did everything right. They paid every single tax. They reported the kind of venue they were. They reported everything they did. And they still wound up on the hook. And it, it's it's terrifying. I know. I, I once uh, forgot to stick in a new category of advertising revenue when Google AdSense started. I did my, my reports wrong from Quicken, and I discovered I'd been underpaying the state for two years. And so I very quickly wrote the state and said, excuse me, I messed up. I paid the feds correctly because I got 1099s, but I was doing the reports wrong. And they said, because you told us 
you don't have to pay uh, penalties, just interest, and please pay it, you know, revise all the mm-hmm. forms, which I did. But it's it, it can be terrifying to be in that position. It's it's tricky. That's also one of the reasons I got a CPA. I was like, I need I need help, please. You know, I should stop doing my taxes based on advice I find on about.com. It can be so affordable too, especially compared mm-hmm. – I mean the first meeting I had with my accountant, he discovered I'd overpaid by $500 to the state because I'd categorized something as retail instead of wholesale for the magazine, um, you know, the, the subscription revenue we get. And I wrote the state and they immediately sent me a check. And I'm like, well, that covered uh, like my first year with you, you know, outside of taxes. <laughs> so, and they, the state might have figured it out later. The state actually told me once I'd overpaid by 100 bucks on something. But I categorized the revenue. So they might not have. And I'm, because I overpaid, they're not going to audit me for, for that. But um, all right. So we, we've talked – we've gotten to the exciting topic of taxes. So let's <laughs> – Let's move off and let's let's finish on a more interesting thing. I would like to talk briefly about a piece of your writing because I think it was very interesting. Again, very – you are a vulnerable writer. You write these really interesting things where you just put it out there and I think it's inspiring to people who are trying to figure out what to write when you are just so – blunt and honest about the things that go on. So you wrote this great piece for Boing Boing that I think is, it's, a, it's um, I think we can all identify with it because all of us, anybody listening to this show, particularly because you're listening to this show for that reason, uh, have these great ideas and we only execute on some fraction of them. Maybe none of them even. Mm-hmm. We don't have the time or the tools. You wrote a wonderful post that I will link to. You don't have to recapitulate the whole thing on the podcast, but I'd love to finish with it because I thought you you did such a wonderful job of, of making lemonade out of lemons and more lemonade is that you wrote and sold a piece to Boing Boing about a thing that you could have been so bitter about and you wrote about so, in such a friendly, hilarious way and now is a piece that's up on Boing Boing and is an advertisement for you as a writer as well and it's, as a human being. So, I mean, to be fair, it's, yeah. it's you know, if it's anything, it's an advertisement for, for Slash, the game that the other game company created, right. the well, games so, I play date made. Yeah, so tell, so just maybe just briefly, because people can read the article, but so you, you and a friend had this, uh, you had this terrific idea, tell a friend and uh, card tabletop games are huge now, card games are huge. What was the genesis, uh, the, the root idea for this card game? I, um, in my real life, I'm a very vulgar person. I like to make jokes about um, words that are sometimes inappropriate for work. (laughs) So I I had this idea that we were going to make this game where you would describe, you know, characters from different franchises having sex with each other. (laughs) And... I knew that would be a great idea because I thought that sounded like fun. And my friend also thought that sounded like fun. And we play tested it and it turned out to be a kind of fun idea. Because most slash fiction out there, I mean, there's a category called slash fiction, right? Exactly. And most slash fiction out there is characters from the same franchise, Kirk and Spock famously, mm-hmm. right? So, okay. But there are now plenty, there are plenty of, there's slash fic about characters from multiple franchises you should look up um super hulock at some point i've heard about that after the Dashcon <laughs> debacle i've heard a lot more about super hulock i'll put that in the show notes for those sure there. anyway so we had this idea to create a card game which you know you would draw cards that had character names on them and then you would match them up and you would talk about how they had sex with each other mm-hmm. and that's just fantastic <laughs> so um so we we started talking to some lawyers and people in the industry and they basically said this game is never going to work because you have character names on the cards and you could get sued you could get cease and desist blah 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 and so we didn't make the game but this other group of people who work at games by playdate had a very similar idea if not identical very very nearly the same game they talked to lawyers, they kept talking, they came up with, they found a way to make it work that we did not find. And they made this really successful game. It's called Slash Romance Without Boundaries, and you should totally go buy it, you know, or play it online. Um, so yeah, so I wrote this piece about how I tried to make a game and failed. And then these other people tried to make the same game and it worked. And that's really cool. I'm really glad they did. I'm also kind of glad I didn't, honestly, because I don't think I would be any good running a game company. I think I would fail at that. <laughs> well, that's interesting, though. But this is this is where I say again, I don't, I, I wouldn't call you unique, but I would call you uh, among a small cadre of people willing to uh, admit that and talk about that. Is that the, that 
I think there's a, t- a tendency, and maybe we think it's a necessity, especially when you're a freelancer, to only talk up your positive attributes. This is what I'm great at. I'm great at everything. And I'm great at this and this and this and this. And then you try to focus yourself on the thing that you really want to do. And instead, you're being honest about the things that you really found the path that you want to be on. And I think that's terrific. And the universe has talked to you also. And the fact that people want you to write for them is, uh, is the uh, other side of that, is that the universe is saying, yeah, yeah, this is the thing that, uh, uh, that aligns best with the way in which the universe we live in works because of the response you're getting. I mean, I think, honestly, for for this particular game, the best outcome, the outcome that I feel badly that didn't happen, was let's say I had this idea, and let's say my friend started a game company, and let's say someone else who knew what they were doing made it an actual game company, you know, with, with employees and, like, an accountant and things, right? That would have been a great outcome. Me trying to start a game company, even my friend and I trying to start a game company together, I would have been a bad partner for that enterprise. I was, you know, I'm just going to say that right. So I don't feel badly that that I didn't start a terrible game company that lost money. But I do feel badly that, you know, no one else was able to start a good game company because I, you know, didn't pursue this idea to its full extent. That's, That's where I actually feel badly about it. I understand, but and, the, and then the the article is nice in that you interviewed the people who made the game. Oh yeah, they're great. They know exactly what they're doing. They've it's, been doing it for years. I should point out they were uh, they actually advertised. I should say disclosure. They advertised in part of our indie ed program for uh, one of their new games, uh, not this one, um, <laughs> a few weeks ago too. Um, but yeah, this is a this is the thing is follow, you know follow your bliss, but figure out what your bliss is that you're trying to trying to follow. I think well, so I'm going to link to uh, people should check out the show notes for plenty of links. So all their stuff you're doing, find your current writing, and and uh, they can see how what the dollars and cents are behind what you're doing. And Nicole, Nicole, thank you for coming on and talking so openly about your life and your freelance career and, and what drives you. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. You can now support the production of this podcast directly at Patreon.com/slash New Disruptors. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash New Disruptors. Support us at a level that starts at $1 per month. At higher levels, you can get our thanks on the air, t-shirts, and more. You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com. And our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.